0: Hello, this is Christopher Bandini, one of the hosts of New Books in Psychoanalysis. And today I will be here with uh, Professor Erwin Hirsch, who will be speaking about his book, uh, the Interpersonal Tradition, the Origins of Psychoanalytic Subjectivity. Dr. Hurst is a distinguished ver- ver- visiting faculty at the William Alanson White Institute, faculty supervisor and former director of the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis, adjunct clinical professor of psychology and supervisor, postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, New York University, editorial board, contemporary psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic dialogues and Psychoanalytic. Perspectives, author of 75 psychoanalytic articles, up, chapters. It's up to, it's up to 80. Uh, up to 80, okay, okay. Stand corrected. <laughs> chapters and reviews. And the 2008 Goethe Award-winning book, Coasting in the Countertransference, Conflicts of Self-Interest Between Analyst and Patient. Uh, it's published by Rutledge. And more recently, uh, the book we'll be talking about, The Interpersonal Tradition, The Origins of Psychoanalytic Subjectivity, also by Rutledge. In Press is volume one of a two-volume book, Co-edited with Donald Stern, the Interpersonal Perspective and Psychoanalysis, self-selected papers, uh, also on Rutledge. Uh, just a note of self-disclosure, uh, usually I don't know the authors that I'm talking to, but I've known Erwin for many years. I uh, am a graduate of the Manhattan Institute that Erwin founded, and Erwin uh, was my supervisor. Uh, so, uh, it'll be a little bit of a different slant today. So, uh, welcome, Erwin. Uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Honored, honored to be your
0: supervisor. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, Okay, so what we usually do to get started is we we talk about uh, what led you to write this book, uh, you know, coming at the uh, uh, coming after uh, such a great book uh, coasting in the counter transference what what led you to collect your papers and to uh, and to compile them?
1: Well, uh, I am supposed to be frank here, right? Uh huh. My main motive for writing has always been uh, self interest to make myself as public and known uh, as possible, and so that is the primary motivation for everything I write and has been from the beginning. Uh, I saw an opportunity here because my Coastal of the County transfers was, was quite successful in terms of sales, uh, I saw an opportunity to publishing of a book of papers basically that I had already written between 1984 and 2014, uh, because the public publishers usually don't like to publish selected papers, you know, papers that have already been published in journals or books, book chapters. But because of the success of the first book, I had the feeling they would do it. And, uh, they did. And, uh, uh, i picked the papers that i suppose i like the best and that I, I guess these are my favorite papers for the most part except there was one old paper that i published uh, in my in my first book that was a favorite but but these fundamentally are the papers i like best
0: I think it's uh, safe to say, well, especially now that you've had 80 papers instead of 75, that you're you're probably one Roughly, of the more <laughs> one of the more prolific writers in the field at the moment. What what uh, what leads you to write? How do you um, how do you go about writing and and, uh, and being as prolific as you are?
1: Well, as I implied to my first answer, uh, ambition drives. Uh, Willfulness, uh, kind of a drivenness. Uh, I uh, the the process is is certainly not pleasant. I mean, there are some fortunate people, probably a minority, who really enjoy the process of writing. I don't. I mean, from time to time, I've written something that. Was as you know almost as much enjoyable as it was uh, pushing myself, but for the most part, it, it's you know kind of torturous. I literally lock myself, you know, sequester myself in a room for hours at a time on a weekend day. Well, now I don't work Friday, so that is okay too, and uh, push myself to produce uh and sometimes it comes from there's really something I want to say but I've written you know so much over the years the things I really wanted to say I said pretty early on so in, in current times most of the writing I do is by invitation you know journal I I I, I have a paper to present at a conference And I have to write something for that, or a journal might request, or a book, you know, might request a paper. Uh, There are very few papers I write now that come from, oh, boy, I want to write about this. (laughs) But I practically never fail to take the opportunity to respond to an invitation to write, because, as I said, I like very much seeing my name in print.
0: So we could say it's a it, it's a you're compelled by a healthy narcissism.
1: Well, the, whether it's healthy or not is up to the uh, <laughs> maybe not up so to the listener. <laughs> up to the listener. Uh, uh, you know, I, I like I like that I've done this,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and I've never expected to do this either. Yeah. Uh, I never expected to write
0: you're also quite sure. candid candid about and have written about uh your own personal history about becoming a psychoanalyst and and what's led yeah. you uh to to this point. Can you say a little bit more about that? I know you wrote about it in the book, but uh about my candor? About about your about all oh, about your about how, you've, how you how you got work? there about your early psychoanalytic experiences, about how you got to be in the field and um
1: Well, I uh I went I went as an undergraduate to Brew College as part of the City University of New York system. And I went to Brew College as a, was the business school of the City University. And uh, you know, I, I had ambitions to be an accountant basically because the only college graduate in my parents' generation was an accountant and he by far made more money than anybody else on either side of my family, so it seemed like a smart thing to do. But alas, the only D I ever got in college was in the first accounting course, and so that was the end of accounting. And the business administration courses bored the hell out of me. And at at Baruch College, they had because it was located, you know, right in mid, mid Manhattan, they had a lot of sort of terrific charismatic teachers who were economists and psychologists or psych- psychoanalytically, some psychoanalytically trained psychologists in practice. It was very easy to, you know, have a career in economics or psychotherapy and mid, still be teaching midtown. And, and these teachers were, as I said, a few of them were really charismatic and terrific teachers and, They seemed so liberated and free and talked about sex so openly and they seemed so comfortable with themselves. I said, gee, I want to, I want to be like that. I mean, I like psychology better than economics. Uh, and those are the only two liberal arts majors really in in the school I would have had to transfer if I wanted to major in English and history, which I did think about. But I wanted to be like these guys. And uh I thought if I was a psychologist and had a personal analysis somewhere down the line I would be free and liberated and comfortable talking about anything like these guys. So that that's where it started. Uh I applied to grad graduate schools and uh various without knowing what academic psychology was like at all, it was at Baruch College, it was clinical psychology, psychoanalytically oriented clinical psychology. Uh, academic psychology throughout the country is research in um, very, very behavioral and uh, biological and zoological things. So I, I went to the University of Maryland. It's the only place I got into. My grades were not, you know, I was never an outstanding student, uh, and uh It was like total shock. I thought I was in the Department of Zoology or Biology, and it was miserable for the first two years and almost quit a whole bunch of times. But it was, I didn't know what else I was going to do. It was during the Vietnam era, and I sure as hell didn't want to get drafted and go to Vietnam. So I stayed there with a student deferment and got as much clinical experience as I could get working in the Veterans Administration Clinic in Washington, D.C., which was on the site of the Vietnam Memorial, coincidentally. Uh, And uh, there were some very good supervisors there who were analytic in orientation. And, uh, you know, I got really into it. And, uh, yeah, so, and, 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 and I I should add, uh, I did amazingly well in, at the University of Maryland in the doctoral exams in spite of hating most of the material. So i uh, was really proud of that. And, and so there you are. I, I, I felt behind. I wanted to come back to New York. And I, I felt behind uh, psychoanalytically to most of the Young, you know, people my, who appears in New York because they had gone to programs like NYU or Delphi or a City University that had very psychoanalytic doctoral programs, and they had a tremendous advantage over me. So I took a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, where almost everybody was interested in psychoanalysis, and it was a wonderful experience. And uh, and then after that, uh, I started in the NYU postdoctoral program. Hmm.
0: Uh, and, uh, was, where were you introduced to interpersonal thinking?
1: Not at Einstein. Uh, Einstein, you, you know, as I've mentioned in my book, probably a number of times, the, the classical, Freudian, classical Freudian psychoanalysis was completely hegemonic, uh, until the 1980s, and at Einstein, uh, all the supervisors uh, who were analytically trained were trained in New York psychoanalytic, and the atmosphere was very classical, and I thought that's what psychoanalysis was. It, it, it was I never knew at that time there were different orientations in psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis was, Freudian, was classical Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, And uh I didn't really understand the difference until toward the end of my two year postdoctoral fellowship I began analysis myself and the my analyst quite coincidentally really turned out, you know, to be from the White Institute. And that's where I began to recognize that, that there were differences in at the White Institute and of NYU postdoctoral were different than psychoanalysis as I always assumed it was. Now, now there's an interesting story there, and I think it's in my first chapter of the book. I don't know. Is it, does it make sense, Chris, to speak about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, given that I've written about it in the first chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes, it's okay. Yeah, you could write, okay. even though you wrote about it, you could talk about it here.
1: Okay, so toward the end of my two year postdoctoral fellowship and anticipating a year later applying for analytic training, knowing I have to have to be in analysis, but I also wanted personally i I very much wanted to be in analysis it was sort of the beginning of some troubled period uh, I asked uh you know some of the People I knew at at, uh, at Einstein again, who who were mostly exposed to classical analysis for a referral, a low cost referral because, you know, the money I earned on a postdoctoral fellowship was negligible, uh, and I was referred to somebody from uh, who was just finishing apparently. The person referred me was seeing this guy and liked him, and apparently the guy needed another training case to graduate, and uh, I thought I was real lucky because he was pretty senior in training and, and uh, uh, had time, and of course, because of his training situation, his fee was low for me, uh, and so I went up to see this guy, and after the end of the session... He declares to me, well, you know, I don't think you're a candidate for psychoanalysis. You you, you have a narcissistic personality disorder, and I don't think you're analyzable. Uh, now, that, that set the tone for my whole career and shaped everything I've ever done and everything I've ever written can be traced to that experience because... If you have wanted to read through my writing, uh, I have, I'll use a, a strong word, a hatred for the medical model. He was a psychiatrist, of course. Uh, I have a hatred for diagnosis. And I have a hatred for the uh, anyone's alleged objectivity that has the... Uh, a chutzpah to say someone is with 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 conviction that someone is or is not analyzable. Uh and that was one of my early papers, was based on uh nineteen eighty four paper on on the issue of analyzability. Still one of my favorite papers mm-hmm. uh, published in published in the American Journal of Psychoanalysis and, and in my book in in this book. <laughs> I think it's the first chapter. Uh uh, as you can see, it sort of set the tone for everything I've ever written and everything I've ever taught. So, just to finish the story, uh, I, I thought at the moment my career as a psychoanalyst was over. If I'm not analyzable, how the hell am I going to get into an analytic institute? Uh, but I, got another referral, and it was quite coincidental that it was not to a classical analyst, but to the person I mentioned who was, at the time, a graduate of, of the Institute, and I went to see him, and he said, uh, sure he'd be happy to see me, I was jumping to his lap. I, I, uh, uh, I'm so incredibly grateful, uh, and, of course, he was interpersonally trained, and I became exposed and that motivated me to, you know, read some about that perspective, which I had didn't even know existed, and I identified with the way he worked quite a bit. And there you are.
0: Uh, there are certainly uh, several threads that run through uh, the different articles, even though they're from different time periods, and you know, through your entire career. Uh, and I want to get to as many of them as I as I can, uh, but certainly. Uh, One is the idea that uh, interpersonal theory was uh, was there at a time that when it wasn't recognized, and that it took years for the field to catch up. So I just wanted to ask you about that.
1: Well, it begins, you know, as you know, I mean, Sullivan had some. I'm sorry, Forenzzi had some influence on Sullivan, uh, largely through Forenzzi's analysis of brief analysis of Clara Thompson who was Sullivan's closest colleague. But it begins with Sullivan in the late 30s and and through the 40s. Uh, And uh, it didn't uh, become integrated at all into the broader body of psychoanalysis. I mean, Sullivan was in Washington, so there was some influence in Washington. Sullivan's specialty was really working psychoanalytically with schizophrenic patients. And so, you know, in Washington, that sort of bred Frieda von Whiteman and Harold Searles. Uh, and they uh, established the Institute in New York at, uh, at William Allison White. Uh, and a number of graduates of William Allison White were the founders of the NYU postdoctoral program. Uh, and pretty much that was it, uh, for, for interpersonal psych, the exposure of interpersonal psychoanalysis, uh, nobody outside of Washington, maybe a little bit in Baltimore cause it's so close to Washington and New York. It was completely irrelevant. Uh, and you know, they, Published their own journals. First, there was a journal called Psychiatry, which was published in Washington, and then uh, Contemporary Psychoanalysis started, which is the journal of the, of the White Institute. Uh, and nobody outside of that small group ever read those journals, and the uh, in people who identify as interpersonalists saw themselves as a uh, a rebellious lot uh, and took some pride in being non-mainstream and iconoclastic. And so basically, most of them didn't read any literature outside of those two journals. And the two coexisted with one very hegemonic in position and one very minuscule minority and that really persisted until the early 1980s you know there were i mean a delphi postdoctoral program which i also taught at uh, for a number of years had some people who were a number of people actually who were interpersonally trained and then we started the manhattan institute in 1981 i, I was one of seven founders who were Graduates of the interpersonal track in NYU, you know, with an emphasis on interpersonal psychoanalysis, but it wasn't, uh, and I, and we started it because interpersonal psycho there was no institute that was interpersonally oriented that also accepted social workers at right. the time, and we thought there was a tremendous market for social workers who wanted psychoanalytic training and who were interpersonally oriented or bent. Uh, uh, and that was in 1981. Uh, in 1983, Greenberg and Mitchell wrote their classic book, which is, you know, the most important book of, I don't know, last 100 years, 75 years, I don't know what to rank it with, but it's the most important book in, certainly in modern times, I believe, where, uh, they, uh, coined the term relational. And distinguished uh, drive process theory from relational conflict model, and, and interpersonal psychoanalysis was chief among uh, the strongest voice in what they call relational. I mean, they they found they. They found other points of view that they felt were incompatible with classical psychoanalysis and much more compatible with interpersonal psychoanalysis. Uh, that is, the absence of drive theory, and so they put together under a relational umbrella, object relations theory, self psychology, etc. And the rest, the rest is history. But I've always argued that the interpersonal tradition was the most was had the strongest voice. Uh, under the relational umbrella and certainly for Greenberg and Mitchell who are both graduates of the white Institute uh, I don't know I forget what your question was I, I may have veered far away from it
0: no I, I think I think you answered it uh, uh, basically about the interpersonal tradition and and where and it not being recognized oh. up, up to a certain point
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, so after Greenberg and Mitchell's article uh, and not our uh, book the book became so popular and such a seminal piece of work and just brilliant, I believe. Uh, and people knew about it, the personal psychoanalysis uh, and it became sort of more, more accepted into the larger body of psychoanalysis. Now, of course, many, people identify themselves as relational. If it's a whole, I don't know. Should I go there?
0: Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm.
1: That, I mean, That's a whole other thing. I've written a great deal about, uh, at, at, at NYU postdoctoral, uh, the interpersonal, the interpersonal track, uh, did not want to integrate... Well, at first they did integrate Steve Mitchell and a few others into the interpersonal track in NYU. Uh, But they, the senior people who, in retrospect, a number of them were fools, real fools, thought there was too much that was alien to interpersonal psychoanalysis. They thought the language... It was too Freudian, or some of the object relations concepts were not compatible, and I agree that some of them are not compatible, but there was enough that was compatible that those idiots never should have cast out Steve Mitchell and a few of his colleagues, and they basically very rudely uh, and, and insultingly berated them, and then they walked out and formed the interpersonal track and said, screw you, to the interpersonal track. And the interpersonal and the relational track, they, they formed the relational track in NYU. And, uh, you know, a few years later, Steve Mitchell and others started Psychoanalytic Dialogues, a journal of relational perspectives. And so relational, because it, captured such a much wider audience of interpersonal of object relations of self psychology contemporary Kleinian uh, uh, Boston process change group uh, became much much more popular and and at NYU for sure and and nationally and internationally as well so interpersonal psychoanalysis for the most part has been subsumed under relational. Now, what I've written about is that, I've written a fair amount about this and a lot of it is in the book, is that for, for a certain percentage of people called relational, they are absolutely indistinguishable from interpersonal, that there is absolutely no distinction. Uh, but they still call themselves relational, because they went through training at NYU postdoc and they went to training in the relational track. So they don't call themselves interpersonal, even though they're completely compatible. Now, Steve Mitchell has said said in personal communication that he considers himself relational and interpersonal. And some others do too. People like Donald Stern and Philip Bromberg say the same thing. I, I say the same thing. Uh, but uh, there are other relational traditions that are different in many, many ways. And again, that has been a, a major source of my writing to talk about the differences between or among those orientations called that are called relational well. uh
0: yeah, I, w- I was thinking of a couple of points. I'll, I'll just throw a few things out at you that kind of – I guess they were sticking points of some kind. Uh, I think in the interpersonal tradition, the differences between Sullivan and Fromm and, and even the differences uh, within Sullivan himself uh, kind of caused mm-hmm. caused uh, maybe some difficulty in maybe integration. Uh, I think also of the two, two key concepts, the idea of the unconscious and interpersonal theory uh, – a- and also, drive theory as kind of sticking points that may may lead people to feel uh, interpersonals is kind of an isolated thing or a different thing, or maybe that was before Stephen Mitchell. But I was wondering what you thought about those things. I know it's a lot.
1: Well, uh, I think among the things that S- Steve Mitchell and others objected to about the interpersonal tradition and why they wanted to form uh, another tradition. Uh, I mean, Sullivan and from the two main initiators of, along with Clara Thompson of, of the interpersonal tradition had some downsides of uh, both as people and as theorists uh, and th- things that I personally disagree with. I, I, I just often parenthetically, I, I feel I have always felt completely compatible with with the work of Stephen Mitchell. (laughs) I felt more compatible with what he had written than I did with either Sullivan or Frown. And to me, Stephen Mitchell is as interpersonal as anybody, even though he is interpersonal-relational. Uh hope that's not too confusing. Sullivan was... Aside from being a very ordinary person, was, uh, very much into a, a procedure called detailed inquiry, which he presumed to uh, ask tons of questions, finding out the various gaps in the history of uh, any, any given patient. And it was such a obsessive, compulsive, way of working that it never ever appealed to me you know so when your mother uh, cooked chicken uh, you were sitting where in the room and your sister was in what part of the kitchen or was she in the I mean it drove me nuts Uh, never appealed to me and that was a big part of selling and there was also an element there of you could see finding out the truth, you know, what actually happened, and that's completely contradictory to the notion of subjectivity, which Sullivan also introduced. The title of my book, you know, the participant observation means that the analyst can never be an objective person; that the analyst is subjective, just as the patient is. So the detailed inquiry seemed totally incompatible with. The, the notion that Sullivan introduced a participant observation, which led to an embrace, a contemporary embrace of analytic subjectivity. Uh, the other thing about Sullivan is he was sort of a, a paranoid guy. I mean, paranoid for good reasons. He was gay in an era where you couldn't acknowledge being gay without being drummed out of a profession. So maybe that was a big part of his being paranoid. It probably was. Uh but nonetheless, he was a pretty paranoid person, and he he didn't really work in the transfer, the here and now of the transference. He wasn't that interested in what patients had to say about him, what patients felt about him, in inviting those kinds of uh, commentary, uh, and uh, which is completely compatible with much of the rest of psychoanalysis, uh, and that also never appealed to me. Now, Eric Fromm did address transference quite a bit, uh, and did use his countertransference, kind transference, contrary to Sullivan, very actively in helping him understand patients and make observations about patients and ask questions to patients. But Fromm was an ordinary character in a very different way. He was very confrontational and challenging. And in that context, could be very, very harsh, uh, and so interpersonal. So interpersonal psychoanalysis. I know Steve Mitchell strongly objected to Fromm's harshness and uh, to Sullivan's detailed inquiry, and and, uh, and I think that that turned off both those. Both those people turned off a lot of followers, at the, both at the Y Institute and at NYU Postdoctoral. Not that there isn't remnants of that. I mean, Frum did have an influence on me through Erwin Singer, who was Frum's major translator and student. And so I tend to be somewhat challenging, but hopefully, I'm nowhere as nearly as harsh in my challenges as from was and as some of the some of my teachers at n y u and and were mm. but I certainly don't do detailed inquiry
0: but that, that's where I might differ from you as another as a fellow interpersonalist i I do find it useful um and so interpersonalists don't all work the same way
1: that's for sure that's for sure uh and Just as there are tremendous differences among people who call themselves relational, you're quite right. There are big differences among people who call themselves interpersonal, including, as you say, the use of detailed inquiry. Uh, I don't think there are that many people who are as harshly confrontational and challenging as Fromm was and Erwin Singer was. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yes, I agree. I I, I think, uh, I agree with you. There are, it is not a uniform way of working. But even among classical psychoanalysis analysts, they're not uniform either. There's sort of a standard basic way of thinking, but there's enormous difference from analyst to analyst within any tradition. Because the analyst's personality and personal tastes you know, have so much to do with the way we work. I mean, that's another thing I've, I write about a great deal. I mean, perhaps you Find detail inquiry create if you like it. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. So you're influenced one way, I'm influenced another way. Well uh-huh.
0: Uh, now to kind of move on a little bit, you've also written, you've, you've taken Sullivan's term participant observer and turned it around, uh, and you really talk about your own feelings, I think really taking, uh, after one of your major influences that, I, that you mentioned, Harold Searles, uh, the, your feelings in the room, and, and you speak about what it, it is to feel counter-transference love, and a lot of the articles are about your feelings being with patients and, and how you grapple with that and how you how you use it. So I'd like to hear yeah, more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's become absolutely integrated into contemporary psychoanalysis and even among many classical psychoanalysts. That is, the, the use of one's countertransference, or you could say, in the broader sense, the use of one's subjectivity is absolutely central to almost all contemporary psychoanalysis uh i think i think that starts with with eric from uh maybe it starts with frenzy but i think it starts with eric from uh and uh searles i mean in that regard although very influenced by sullivan searles was very different than sullivan uh And Searles was probably a much bigger influence on me than Sullivan. Uh, You know, after my postdoctoral fellowship and somewhat simultaneous with my analytic training at NYU postdoctoral, I worked in the day hospital of Hillside hospital, which is a psychiatric part of Long Island Jewish hospital. And when at the time, it, when it started, it was considered, it, they wanted it to be the Meninger of the East, which meant, which means an a, a, a inpatient and day hospital that works, is committed to working psychoanalytically with seriously disturbed patients. Uh, and that was the population uh, in the day hospital where I worked. Uh, you had people there five days a week from nine to four, they had either come directly because of a psychotic break or psychotic depression or, uh, a suicide attempt, many suicide attempts, or they came from the inpatient unit, uh, for those same reasons. And so they were... They were not quite the population that Searles worked with. They were not chronic schizophrenics. They were more acutely schizophrenic or psychotic, Uh, and they tended to be sort of young. Mm -hmm. Early 20s would would probably be the average. Uh, And uh, I worked psychoanalytically, and that was the ethos of this hospital, and of the day hospital, uh, the head of the day hospital was trained the managers. The head of the hospital was trained the managers. And I read every word that Searles wrote at the time and, and had a couple of, a few of us hired him for some weekend seminars down the line as well. So I got to know him a little bit. Uh, and, uh, his way of working, I mean, I never quite embraced all of his way of working because he was, much more radically, outrageously self-disclosing you know, than I've ever been. But in terms of using this counter-transference kind of to work with severely disturbed patients, but really to work with everybody, uh, became very much a part of uh, the way I think and the way I work. And using one's counter-transference kind of does not mean self-disclosing one's feelings. It just means using one's feelings to make observations and ask questions. Uh, so Searles, you could—I mean, for so much of what I write, I think one can hear the voice of, of, of Searles. Uh, and yet, the other thing—the other thing, of course—I I, I, maybe you're going to ask me about this anyway. Hmm. What I like most about Sullivan, aside from his, in a sense, discovery that psychoanalysis is an objective co-participant situation was the absence of hierarchy, the relative absence of hierarchy for personal reasons, because my own personal life, my own family, I am extremely sensitive to hierarchy. And we are all more simply human than otherwise is a clarion call, as is Heinrich Racker the psychoanalytic relationship is not one between a well a well analyst and a sick patient. Uh that, that that is at the heart of everything, every way I think and everything I do. And that uh Sullivan Sullivan knew how screwed up he was and he knew he was as crazy or crazier than many of his patients and as flawed as a human being as many of his patients, and that's very much how I feel and have always felt. And the absence of hierarchy implicit in thinking that way, and Searle's very, very much made clear that he felt that way, uh, is, is as pivotal as anything else in the way I think and work and what i've
0: written about uh, which does lead me to another key point that you write about which is the uh the different ways that the interpersonalist sees the patient which is different from uh earlier models classical models or developmental arrest models the idea that and you often use the word that the the patient isn't a baby and is rather an adult
1: yeah i i think uh the big the, the biggest difference between object relations you know, Winnicottian kind of middle school object relations theory, self psychology, and interpersonal and all three of them are, you know, very central under the relational umbrella. The biggest difference is the view of the, the view of deficiency uh that uh that people or many people have had not good enough mothering or insufficient empathic parenting and therefore have never grown or developed sufficiently and are really seen as suffering from a deficiency disease and really seen as arrested uh, as sort of figuratively children never developed beyond that.
0: Uh,
1: whereas I see uh, I, I see that as, as condescending. Uh, I see it as a distinctly hierarchical model where it is assumed that the analyst is a, an adult, is is sufficient rather than deficient. And in a hierarchical Way sort of re-parents the undeveloped child patient, uh, and parent-child relationship is a hier- is a hierarchical relationship. We are all more simply human than otherwise is anything but a hierarchical relationship. Uh, so, I think I and many people identify as interpersonal and many other people identify as relational as well see all, all of us as having and using Brumberg, or brumberg's terms self states so all of us have some regressive self states some of us have or have baby immature self states uh obviously some of us more than others but We are adults, and we are formed. We are not deficient. We have formed a character structure based on our life experience that is a distinct character structure that is adaptive to whatever our life experience has been. Uh, And that is a strength as opposed to a deficiency. Searle saw his crazy, crazy... Hospitalized patients as strong, stronger than him, because in the context of very bad life experience, they found a way to adapt and not die or kill themselves, uh, and that is not a deficiency. That is the best kind of adaptation that was possible under the circumstances. Uh, so being as sensitive to hierarchy as I am, and I'm sensitive because of my own personal family reasons, uh, family origin reasons, uh, I have always been extremely critical of that point of view, uh, and in fact, the next article that is coming out well, of the next article of mine that's coming out is it, in in psychoanalogue dialogues. is a discussion of, of two other papers where what I just said is sort of the centerpiece of my whole discussion, mm-hmm. making those distinctions between interpersonal and traditional object relational self-psychological points of view.
0: And you really feel that the uh the field is march is really heading towards a a two person psychology if it isn't already there.
1: Oh, it's there. I, I think it's there.
0: Uh, there's been kind I of
1: really a, think, a, I really think it's there. even even, even among. I don't, know, I, I don't. I can't. I can't say if it's a majority. I don't know enough to say it's a majority. A very significant. Portion of
0: classical psychoanalysis as analysts as well, yes. Uh, yeah, lately, lately I've heard back from some people who are really kind of pushing back against uh, against some relational interpersonal thinking. Uh, it might even be an old argument, but but it seems to be resurfacing that uh, uh, interpersonalists don't uh, concentrate don't or even relational doesn't focus enough on the unconscious, and also it's not sexy enough. It doesn't have enough kind of a uh, drive element. Like there seems to be almost like an artisanal uh, revisiting. Of uh, some of the older ideas, I was just wondering if you'd heard about this or, uh, or or seen anything about that.
1: Well, it's always been a criticism of interpersonal psychoanalysis that doesn't deal with unconscious. Uh, I mean, that's always been the criticism, and, and, and you know, indeed, I don't I don't hear that so much anymore. It's a different. I mean, one one article that I wrote that's not in this collection. I, it's co-authored in nineteen ninety five. I think it's. It's called Changing Conceptions of Unconscious. It was published in Contemporary Psychoanalysis. And it it talks about what unconscious means from an interpersonal perspective. And unconscious is, I mean, classical analysts in the past, and, and I'm sure some currently, equate drive with unconscious. But interpersonalists don't equate drive with unconscious. What is unconscious, for me, is internalized relational configurations, a term that Steve Mitchell used, actually. It's a ter- terrific term. Uh, that is, we have internalized our life experience with, with significant others, and we also have identified with significant others, mostly parents. Uh, and what is in our unconscious are those internalized relational configurations and those identifications that we are not aware of. And so we live the way we live because we've internalized the significant others in our life. And that is not known. That is either you call it unformulated, you can call it dissociated, or you could just use the term unconscious. So it's a different unconscious, but it's not, nonetheless. I mean, we are un, we are unconsciously motivated to live ways that we have internalized. That is what unconscious motivation is—to repeat the ways of living that we are most comfortable with, because this is what we have known and internalized. It's a purely interpersonal kind of unconscious. It has nothing nothing to do with drives and drive fear. See
0: the unconscious is enacted uh between people or between the, the patient and the analyst and not kind of awaited to waiting to emerge in some mysterious way through uh interpretation or free association or something well, like that. Well the
1: unconscious in, in both perspectives the unconscious is enacted uh in classical psychoanalysis the unconscious is enacted by patients uh through their dreams and through their free associations, talking about their sexual and aggressive instincts. Uh, from the interpersonal and relational, most relational perspectives, the unconscious is enacted by the way the patient engages and relates to the analyst. That's why the analysis of transference and transference, countertransference matrix is still very central, uh, but it isn't. It was always central in classical psychoanalysis too, to be sure, analysis of transference was the heart of classical psychoanalysis, but transference referred to sexual and aggressive drives. So they're always looking for sexual and aggressive drives in the transference as opposed to a more broad how the patient relates to us is the way patients bring their unconscious process into the analytic diet. Well, we are coming. Of, mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. Go ahead.
0: Uh, I said we asked about
1: sex. Yeah, You asked about sex. Mm-hmm. It is true. It is true that classical psychoanalysts talked about sex infinitely more than interpersonalists and relationalists and self psychologists, and that it was almost like a reaction. Well, it was two things. In part, it was almost like a reaction to sex. Sexual instincts and 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 defenses against forbidden sexual instincts being the heart of all psychological problems, so I think interpersonalists reacted against that and actually put sex too much in the background uh, and did talk did not inquire enough and encourage enough patients to talk about their sex lives and their sexual feelings in the transference, and outside. Uh, I hope that's changing. Uh, The middle school object relations and self-psychologists, I would argue, are still guilty of that because when patients are conceptualized as babies, sex isn't really in the picture. Uh, What's in the picture is deficiency longing, hunger but sex is not that relevant I don't know if Winnicott ever mentioned sex in this whole incredibly enormous body of work uh, so uh, and, and you know the, the way the, the way I think interpersonalists address sex is, is somewhat different than the way traditional Freudians address sex. Traditional Freudians address sex as an instinct. So it, it was, in a sense, it wasn't that personal. That is, the, the patient allegedly had sexual feelings toward the analyst, either overt or, or sort of repressed, but it was a given, the, the assumption that the analyst, I mean, the the patient could be 19 years old and gorgeous, and the analyst could be uh, older than me in his 80s, decrepit, um, and the patient is still allegedly was going to have sexual feelings toward this analyst. You know, absurd, completely absurd. Uh, Because sex was an instinct. It wasn't based on the person of the patient and the person of the analyst. Uh, And And so, in a way, it was safer to talk about sex because it was instinctual and not personal. And number two, it was really safe because the analyst allegedly never had sexual feelings toward their patients because the analyst was objective and the analyst was well-analyzed and, ergo, would not have sexual feelings toward their patients. Now, anybody who's honest with themselves knows and we have sexual feelings toward the patients we are attracted to all the time, and therefore talking about sex is more dangerous, because we have sexual feelings toward our patients, and the risk of boundary violation is therefore always always palpable, uh, and therefore talking about sex is more dangerous uh, if we look at things that way. Uh, well, we are your question
0: yeah and and uh, and then there's so much more to actually get to and but yet we have to we have to stop here, we have to end uh, is there anything that we haven't uh we haven't selectively that we've selectively and attended to that we haven't gotten to that you'd like to say
1: uh no it's a relevant very relevant term no i i i think I got to say i think your questions were were excellent and and uh i don't know if I talk too much, I didn't give you much of a chance to say anything at all. Uh, but I, I think I spoke to what I think are the essentials of how I think, uh, and what means a lot to me. Uh, I just want to make sure that, and it's in the title of my book, and I purposely put it in the title of this book. I want, even my relational colleagues, many of them believe that they discovered psychoanalytic subjectivity. Well, I want to go on record that Forenzi was the first person to, to write about psychoanalytic subjectivity. And from there, it was Sullivan and the interpersonalists who uh, brought psychoanalytic subjectivity into the mainstream of psychoanalysis where it is currently.
0: So well, well they, that would be a good that's a good place to end that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, you're on the record for posterity with that one uh, okay. and, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to talk I think people uh, tune into the podcast to hear the authors rather than the, uh, the interviewers so uh, it, was, uh, it was great talking to you uh, so I've been speaking with Erwin Hirsch uh, the uh, author of the book we've been talking about The Interpersonal's Tradition The Origins of Psychoanalytic Subjectivity by Rutledge, it, published by Rutledge uh, this is Christopher Bandini uh, for New Books in Psychoanalysis until next time